Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. This is APSATS Radio, help for partners after sexual betrayal. We talk about it here. Betrayal trauma. We are APSATS certified clinical partner specialists and coaches who have been trained to help navigate you through this crisis. There is nothing we won't talk about. So I've got Amy on the line. Amy, welcome to the show. What's your question? Well, I have a question about what um, healthy sexuality looks like when Mm. a sex addict is in recovery. One of the things we know about research and sex addicts is that they don't necessarily want sex with their own wife. And so to me, that says he's in really good recovery because he does want that with you. He has been two years sober. He has been in three facilities. And I suspect that's how he's wanting closeness with you. And that is the way that you can tell, one of the ways that you can tell, if a sex addict is in good recovery, if a sex addict is wanting closeness with you, other and sex, if a sex addict is communicating more with you and doing the dance of what we call in early recovery work, that negotiation and compromise. You know, one of the things that makes APSAP different from other organizations that train sex addiction therapists and work with partners is that we really do believe that it's imperative for the sex addict to right the wrongs of sex addiction by increasing recovery and by putting the partner in a position where he's willing to do whatever to make her feel safe. Safety is so important for a partner. That's the first pillar of first pillar of the foundation that needs to be rebuilt in a relationship. This was the worst trauma that you could have ever experienced. And now if if the addict is willing to make you feel safe, and it takes, I know, a long time for you to trust that what is happening is real because he lied to you for so very long. But doing good recovery, if you've done a disclosure, if there are accountability tools in place, he's an open book when it comes to his phone, passcodes, GPS, you know, he's doing some polygraphs just to show you that he really is being honest and he's going to somebody who's trained in the field of sexual addiction. Hopefully that person is including you in from time to time to keep you abreast of the work that he's doing. Um, That's oftentimes what we call early recovery work. It's not marital therapy because you two are nowhere near marital therapies um, when discovery has just occurred and recovery is just beginning. Now, what happens if you've been together 10 years? And he has seen a CSAT or somebody who's been accredited through SASH. And he is 
going to meetings, and he's still working a recovery program. Maybe he's even sponsoring a few people. You know, I said 10 years, but what happens when you really see a pattern of good recovery? It may be that you've been having sex all along, or you may put your sexual relationship on hold to make sure you felt safe. Let's face it. Sex is vulnerable. Sex is sacred. And when that bond has been broken, it can be very difficult. And that is why we thought today's topic would be so important. Because when you're talking about sexual trauma, it's important to really look at how can you define your own sexual trauma and what needs to happen to help heal it? And, you know, one of the things that I really believe in is going to experts, doing the work that you need to do to be able to determine what is it that's going to make you want to redefine that in your relationship. And there is nothing more gratifying than if you can rebuild that with your husband or wife. And I say gratifying because it truly is the greatest gift you can give each other. And that's why it felt like such a betrayal. Because that sacredness had been broken. Okay, so now I'm, I'm thinking about what is it that you need in your relationship just to rebuild it? You know, because those other things have to happen first. You can't just jump in a sack. Now, if you heard our caller on the introduction of the show, she had been with somebody who had been in many treatment centers and he had done his work and he was respecting her boundaries and she had had consequences. And when he faltered, he was willing to accept them. He held himself accountable and he was really desirous of sex. Now, so oftentimes, When you've put in good recovery time and you're wanting that closeness, um, it can feel scary because the last thing you want to do is become a receptacle for his sexuality. So think about your relationship and where you are sexually. I know that our listeners are all over the board. Uh, There's a lot of different types of recovery that our listeners express, you know, some people are in early recovery, some people are in mid-recovery, some people um, have been betrayed in ways that they just don't know if they can ever, ever have a sexual experience again. Interestingly enough, I had a woman a while back who said, I will never have sex with him again. And what she knew was that she 
would never feel safe again to be with him. But she did not believe in divorce. She had Catholic values that said, I cannot divorce my husband. I won't divorce my husband. So she just resigned herself to having a platonic relationship. And he knew it. She knew it. I knew it. And he said, you know what? I have traumatized her so much and so badly that I'm willing to do whatever it takes. And if I can only have this woman as a roommate, as a friend, as um, a non-sexual partner, I'm willing to do that because this is the harm that I've caused. And I may have talked to you about this couple before because she got her disclosure. He took the polygraph. And two or three weeks later, they had their first sexual rendezvous. And when I saw them, they came in and they both seemed happier and closer. And you know what she said? She said, you know, I realized that I, um, I had wanted to keep myself safe, and that's why I made that statement. And I also wanted to see how he would react because I didn't believe he would want me after he had acted out in the many, many forms and ways that he had. And then when he didn't, when he accepted her exactly where she was at, when he took full responsibility for the issue, when he didn't pressure her or manipulate her, and when he was willing to do the hard work to rebuild that initial trust She decided that she desired him sexually and that it was about her. And later on in another session, she said, you know, the other thing is I have to tell you, I do believe there was an element of punishment. I knew if sex was the most important thing in the world to him, I was not ever going to give him that gift again. He had to hurt me that badly. But when he started doing all the right things and maintaining it, it took us probably about eight weeks to get the disclosure done. So they had had probably about four months of sexual sobriety. She said, I just felt different. I felt like he was really trying and he was the man that I wanted to be in love with. And so that was her story. Now, there's this growing awareness and research and appropriate treatment modalities about the traumatic impact of learning that a loved one has a sexual addiction. And yet we still lack uh, research that talks about the sexual impact of the addiction on the partner's sexual experience. So today we're going to be talking with Jeannie Batatoni, who has made it her mission to help women with this problem. Uh, she's amazing. She does great early recovery work. You heard her a couple of weeks ago talking about that while I was on vacation. 
and she works for Willow Tree um, Counseling Center in Santa Rosa, California. Um, and, and she is a CSAT, a certified sexual addiction therapist, and she's on the board of APSAP, which, of course, is the Association of Partner Specialists the organization that trains clinicians and coaches as to how to be sensitive to partners as they go through the discovery and the treatment of being a partner who's experienced sexual and partner betrayal. So Jeannie is really um, going to help us understand what is sexual trauma. It can mean so much to so many. And we're really looking forward to getting more information about this topic because let's face it, people don't talk about sex anyway. And then to talk about sexual betrayal and partner betrayal um, makes it even more difficult. But I have got to tell you, this show is about Betrayal Recovery Radio. It's sponsored by AppSet so that you can have the information you need to feel safe. And one of the things that I really believe is that if we can't talk about it, we're not going to get healthier. We're not going to know who to turn to. And truth is what brings about safety. So I am just so happy that this woman is willing to talk to us from Willow Tree Counseling. She really has been working hard on this field for a long time. So I'm excited because, you know, we don't talk enough about sex. I mean, think back. How did you learn about sex to begin with? Most of us did not have parents that share that kind of information. Um, I happen to have a different experience. My mother taught me the basics about sexuality when I was about seven years old. And I really appreciated that. I appreciated hearing the right names for body parts. I appreciated hearing how when two people loved each other, they cuddled in special ways. I mean, she was very basic. She talked um, in ways that I could understand, and she made me very comfortable about sex early on. And really, what I know is that she probably, my own mother probably helped to formulate my uh, desire to be a counselor and come Uh, more comfortable with their sexuality because it was something she was so open about. And I, um, I remember passing along some of that information to other kids as I got older um, because they didn't have the right information. And that is what this show's all about. It's disseminating information that clearly will help you to understand yourself better and also to be more informed so, so that you can know what, what your choices are and what resources are out there. And, and so t- 
Today's show is about partners and sexual trauma. And Jeannie, welcome to the show. Hello, Carol. Nice to be here. Well, yes. I mean, this is one of those talks that I was just telling my listeners can make you feel a little bit uncomfortable because we're not comfortable talking about sex in general, let alone the betrayal that has caused sexual trauma. But I, I, I promised them that you were comfortable with this and that we would talk to them like we were just talking to, to our friends about this kind of situation. It is so private and it is so um, difficult yeah, it's very private, and, and most folks don't get into usual conversations about their sexual activity or their feelings and thoughts about sex. So it makes sense that it's very uncomfortable for a lot of people. Yeah, so, you know, what do you mean? What does the term sexual trauma mean um, in terms of partner betrayal? Right, and this is one of those pieces that, partners of sex addicts experience so differently than if you're in a relationship with an alcoholic or drug user addict um, because of the sexual impact. And when I say that phrase, what I mean is um, a confusion, a traumatic on one's own self sexuality, your sexual identity, your sexual activities, your thoughts and feelings about sex in general that sometimes partners of addicts, and and not all partners, but some partners, their sexuality and their sexual life has been impacted by the sex addiction. So when that, when we have that impact and we, it's right on the sexual piece, we call it a sexual trauma. Does that make sense? 100%. And so do you believe that partners have undergone something called sexual assault. I mean, when I think right. of sexual Thank assault, you. I think of rape, but there are other forms of sexual assault. Exactly, and thank you so much, because folks do get confused when they hear the term sexual trauma. I haven't been raped. I don't understand how there's sexual trauma. And then when we describe more about what we're talking about sexual trauma, we mean sort of, and it can be physically, sexually assaulted, and also sort of a metaphorical, that the impact on their sexuality, not that they've actually physically, sexually been harmed. So there is a difference here, and I'm certainly not saying that partners of sex addicts have been sexually assaulted. Now, some have, so I don't want to leave that piece out, because some folks might listening may have said, Yes, I have. I do feel like I've been assaulted, but that's not the case all the time. And with the, with the physical, gosh, there's just so much to this and so glad we're talking about this. Um, Because like you said, sex is sometimes very uncomfortable for people to talk about. And if we're not talking about it, then folks out there aren't knowing about it and they're experiencing it. And there have been so many times in my, in, my, in my clinical room where I'm explaining and a partner will say, my gosh, that's what's been going on for 15 years. I had no idea. I thought it was me. It's like, no, that's so the result an of being in a relationship. Uh-huh. Yeah, give us, an, yes. give us so, an example of one of those people. 
Sure. So I can give you <laughs> I can give you multiple. Let's go for, um, and this is not a client in particular, very clear about that. I'm describing sort of um, a common experience. And this comes into play where sometimes, <clears throat> you know, in sex addiction, people in public have this idea of it's lots of sex. Sometimes it's not. So sometimes the sex addict is taking the sexual energy and the sexual action outside of a relationship and the partner's not aware of it. So the partner experiences a lack of sexual activity in the coupleship. And so there are many times when partners wonder, why is he or she not attracted to me? What am I too fat, too thin, too old, too small, too big, too whatever? Why is he or she going outside or why are they just not turned on by me? And this is usually pre-discovery, pre-discovery. So their intuition is wondering, what's going on here? What's going on here? And they've got that scanning. We, we call it hypervigilance, scanning back and forth. What's going on? The client, the partner approaching their addict, addicted partner and interested in sex and rejected over and over, not interested over and over. And so they start to possibly um, feel less than, um, a lot of comparisons or depression. Um, that scanning piece really inhibits their self-confidence in their sexuality. And this is an example of the impact that is um, not a physical sexual assault, but yet it is an assault on their sexuality because they come away thinking, I'm not good enough. If I had bigger breasts, if I had a bigger butt, if I, if I was smaller, thinner, older, younger, the comparison. And that just leads to a lot of um, wounding and rejection. Um, and then you've well, got and, the opposite and, side. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I wanted to add that, you know, oftentimes when they're wondering those things, because I have clients that have the same experience, it really settles or shifts into I'm not good enough. I'm, I'm not desirous enough. And when they find out after discovery that probably what has happened is either their guilt has gotten in the way of the sexuality so they've avoided her or that they've trained their brain to like a certain type of sex or a certain type of person and they're no longer as stimulated so they avoid they learn that, wow, this was all about him. It really wasn't about me, but it affected me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It impacted their sexuality. And that's, and this is, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the big differences before discovery that's happening is the partner is wondering, trying to figure out, and some partners will, you know, try to dress a little more seductively or be a little more flirtatious or try to arrange romantic uh, experiences and really maybe even going outside their comfort zone to try to attract their partner sexually. But their, but their addicted partner is not available um, because their addicted partner's sexuality is in the addiction. And it's not about the partner not being good enough it's completely not that, but yet people are experiencing it that way. So this is how we're trying to, I want to get the word out. And again, there's a difference, which we can talk about, 
of pre-discovery sexual impact and post-discovery disclosure sexual impact. Um, so they're both they're both happening. Um, you also asked. I'll um, give you another example of sexual impact for someone whose um, addictive partner is bringing lots of sexual energy into the relationship. And so at times these partners feel obligated to be sexual. Um, if I don't, I haven't been a good wife. That's one of the pieces. Um, there's a lot of unwanted sexual energy, unwanted sexual touching, um, comments, and thus the partner starts to feel uncomfortable in their relationship sexually because the sexual energy keeps coming at them. So that creates a lack of safety for these clients. And having sexual safety is one of the primary boundaries that we have in the world. We decide who we're going to be sexual with and how. And um, this piece of the sexual energy coming at them, sometimes in a constant wave, is impactful. And, And they might, again, feel like they're pressured to go outside their, their comfort zone within their sexuality. Thus, we have sexual trauma. So there's, well, there's multiple examples. And that last example that you just talked about, because you very clearly said it's different for pre-discovery versus post. Mm-hmm. So the, mm-hmm. the woman whose husband is coming home very charged, very um, sexually um, aggressive, perhaps, or interested, you're saying that there are some partners that feel forced to meet his needs. Now, is that pre or is that post-discovery? I would say that's probably both. I've seen that occur for folks before discovery. And then when they learn about the addiction, they realize, oh, that's what that was about. Sort of like the puzzle pieces, you know, coming together to form a picture. Um, And I've also seen folks feel pressured post-discovery or disclosure because they inaccurately think or believe if I have sex with him, he won't sexually act out. And so we yeah, need that to really work with these people. Yeah, yeah, and there, there is that. We need to work with these folks, remind them. It's, it's the addiction, and it seems so counter, but the addiction, sex addiction, is not about a lacking of anything on the partner's side. The sex addiction remains with the sex addict, and the partner is impacted. So if a partner wants to or is trying to <clears throat> prevent the addict from going outside the relationship, that's going to be ineffective because it's not about her relationship with him sexually. It's about his relationship with his sex addiction. So Absolutely. reminding folks that, <clears throat> yeah. Sorry, I have and a you bit know, of a tickle in my throat. <clears throat> no problem. The other thing I know, you know, 35 years in, in the field of just working with people, and it is a normal and common experience for women when infidelity has occurred, not necessarily sexual addiction, but infidelity, for them to think two things. One is, oh, my gosh, 
I need to win him back. And one of the ways to do that is to become hypersexual. And then two, it's almost a reassurance that they're really okay. And, and that's my experience across the board. They either turn off completely or they rev it up. And, and we do see that in partners too, because, you know, they are in shock. Their prefrontal cortex is not working well because they are so traumatized. And a lot of times they're in such a vulnerable position, they're just trying to do anything that will make them feel attached to the, the person that they've lost to the sexual addiction. And they don't realize, as you so eloquently said, that his acting out is, has nothing to do with her and is not at all about their sexuality. Um, and, and sometimes I'll hear women say, well, I know that I hadn't been a sexual or I know that I've been paying a lot of attention to the kids or I, I know that my work has taken me, you know, out of our bedroom. And although that very well may be true and that happens in all coupleships, the addict had the choice to increase his communication, to talk about compromise and negotiation, and to figure out what to do in the relationship to enhance that. But more often than not, they don't because they've been acting out. And these are two very separate issues. He would have been an addict no matter whether she had been ultra, super, sexual anyway and that is it's not yeah. about a people thing it's about a brain thing it's exactly it's about a brain thing and the his acting out is not about her and that's exactly where if she were more sexual or wasn't more sexual those those are pieces in the puzzle but they're not the cause because the addiction is a neurological process and you know this goes back to carol what we were saying at the very beginning sex is uncomfortable to talk about. (laughs) And so in coupleships and in relationships, people are not often comfortable and fluent in talking about their sexual needs or sexual energies or desire behaviors or desirous feelings. I think we are all sort of trying to figure this out. And so this is why I'm so pleased to be on your show and talking about it so that we can kind of get the word out um, because we acknowledge it's difficult and uncomfortable for folks and for partners of addicts. It's going on. The sexual impact, the sexual element is going on. So the sooner, faster, quicker we can get to folks so they don't think it's me. I'm not enough or I'm not safe with him or I shouldn't say this or that to him or want him to stop. You know, sooner we can get to folks, we can teach them. And when we share information with each other, then we're in a better position to understand and act. And this is why, you know, when I say the difference between pre-discovery and post-discovery is I don't know about you, Carol, but I have so many clients who come in after discovery and when we're talking about what's happened in the past, before they knew anything that was going on. So many of them have been, like I said, in that constant scanning. Something's not right, but there's no smoking gun. Or there is, but he explained it away. Or 
I just, it just something doesn't feel right. That hypervigilance wears on them. And I have a lot of clients who come in with adrenal failure, chronic fatigue, depression, loss of sexual interest. Well, maybe it's my, my fault because I haven't wanted to be sexual with him for the last 10 years. Well, that's a piece of it, but I think he's been acting out more than 10 years. And your body intuitively said, no thanks, that doesn't feel safe, I don't want to do that. So the body was actually enacting a survival mechanism. Um, but these folks come in and, again, adrenal failure, chronic fatigue, depression, loss of sex drive are all experiences of that hypervigilance. Something's going on, something's going on, something's going on. Not that they knew it was sexual, but just something's not quite right, their body was telling them. And they didn't understand. They couldn't make sense of it. Post-discovery. Yeah especially post-disclosure, oh, now I see the landscape. Now I see all these pieces. No wonder my body wasn't interested. No wonder. Now these things make sense. But then they go into partners often have their own sexual response after disclosure or discovery, which, like you said, the hypersexual wanting sex a lot and trying to connect, trying to connect, or aversion, disgust, yuck, no thanks. Um, and there's so many other sexual pieces. This is another reason we call it sexual trauma, because back in the day, and when I say back in the day, that's only, you know, nine, ten years ago, where people started to publish and talk about this on a, a, a large scale, was the, how do I say, the symptoms of aversion and disgust, loss of interest, um, fear, uh, difficulty becoming aroused, uh, another one, you know, feeling dirty or contaminated by the addict's behavior. Those things I just described are very, very, very similar to someone who has been raped and sexually assaulted. So this is how we started to kind of get wind of what this is different. This is different than being a partner of an alcoholic. Um, this is a sexual piece that partners of other addictions don't necessarily encounter. So, and that's a very normal response for partners. I don't want partners feeling like something's wrong with me that I don't want to be sexual or I don't know if I'll ever come to not feel disgusted by it or, again, the body comparisons. And that happens more and bigger sometimes after discovery and disclosure. And so... That, I just want folks to know that that is sort of a, a really appropriate, typical reaction. There's nothing crazy and wrong about that. And, of course, please seek help. Um, but there are a bit of differences in the pre-discovery versus the post-discovery. Is that all well, making yeah. sense as I put it all together? Okay. <laughs> Absolutely, as well as I really haven't heard it described in the way that you did, whereby on an intuitive level, a woman mm -hmm. who may have lost desire or may have just felt like she was too distracted was actually protecting herself because she knew something wasn't right. And let's face it again, when you're sexual with someone, you are the most vulnerable you can ever be. And when you love somebody and he or she has committed to you and is betraying you, 
on some level, perhaps that body knows, even though the mind hasn't caught up yet, because of course we, nobody wants to think that way of our partner, no one. Right, right. And there's that piece of, like you said, the mind hasn't caught up yet. And so that's, I'm so glad you said that. It reminds me to kind of caution folks because there are often times when discovery and disclosure happens, but a partner is angry at themselves. How come I didn't see this? How come I, did, I, I saw something, but how come I didn't push further on that? And I always respond because you were trusting. And to be trusting in a relationship is very important. So please don't be angry with yourself because you were trusting your partner. And so um, helping to release that self-anger, the mind hasn't caught up. I just think the body has a sense of these things sometimes. Um, and a lot of partners would be possibly, you know, suspicious. It, why, why is it taking three hours to go to the grocery store? I don't understand why, why this is so long. And they ask. You know, something doesn't seem quite right. They ask, and a betraying, a betraying addict will say an excuse, a lie, or whatever, and um, a partner would accept it because they're trusting. Of course. Well, there was road. There was an accident. I got there, and then there was line at 5 o'clock. It's really long at the grocery store, and, and then I had to come back through the accident, or, you know, whatever the lie may be. But the partner sometimes does ask, and the answer is a lie, which they find out later, and then it makes sense. So, again, the mind sometimes tries to figure it out, but the body is sensing this doesn't seem quite right. And then we're back to hypervigilant scanning. What's going on? What's going on? What's going on? And that wears out a body. <laughs> that constant stress mm-hmm. and the hormone release, it wears a body out. Then we go into depression, adrenal failure, chronic fatigue. And, you know, I don't know about you, Carol, but there might be many other kind of medical diagnoses um, that come from the overuse and stress on the body. Those are just the ones I see in my room on a regular basis. The, the, the adrenals, the chronic fatigue, the depression, and the loss of um, sexual interest. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and so that's why self-care is almost always the antidote for any stage of uh, recovering from partner betrayal and certainly from sexual assault. Now, I'm curious, Jeannie, what do you believe that a partner can do to heal herself? Oh, yes, yes, yes. So first, foremost, get connected with a qualified sex addiction, partner trauma, clinician, specialist, coach. Um, Having someone who specializes in this area is going to be very, very important. If by chance you're living in a location where you don't have that, um, for, for this sexual impact piece, I would say trying to find someone who's very fluent in treatment of sexual assault. But first choice is always um, sex addiction, partner betrayal, specialist. Um, And then learning. Learning about the impact on the sexual, um, the sexuality, your belief about yourself as a sexual entity, 
um, listening to podcasts like these, um, reading books. You know, let me divert for a moment. There aren't many um, books out that address the sexual healing and the pre-discovery sexual impact. I would love, love, love to do research about that and find more information so we could put it out for folks. There, there, there is a little bit, and I don't know all the books out there, but I do know uh, Facing Heartbreak, which um, is a very, very fluent <clears throat> and older workbook. It actually has many pages talking about the sexual impact and, and having encouraging folks to do work and to learn. So that is certainly a resource out there. I know, I know there are books that have some other pieces, but I haven't found one that's as thorough as Facing Heartbreak. Um, you know, the other piece about reclaiming your sexual self is being in a group. Now, the idea of talking about sex with other people in a group could probably sound very uncomfortable <laughs> with a lot of people out in the world. But if in a lot of partner groups um, that are safe, and consistent and nurturing, that's a great place to have the sexual talks because then you're in a community where other people are having this experience too. So being involved with those and having a therapist that, how do I say? So for the addicted partner, he or she working with someone who's a specialist in sex addiction as well. Having them help the addict understand with empathy and accountability of how to understand, take responsibility for the impact of their addiction on the partner. That's a very important piece because when the partner then starts to share, their addict partner can say, I see what you're saying. I understand. I'm sorry I did that. How can, what can I do to help in this moment? Like their, their addicted partner has been coached. And so through that process, the two of them can create sexual safety. If you're not in a relationship or you're in a relationship where the, the other person is not in therapy or doing that kind of recovery work, still be thinking, how can I create sexual healing um, for myself? Another thing that comes to mind is sexual boundaries. We all have the choice. Who do I be sexual with and how? And that gets a little complicated sometimes in certain relationships. So having, having somebody, clinician preferably, or therapist, specialist, coach, who can figure out with you where do you feel comfortable in drawing a line about your sexual activity and your sexual boundaries. And through that, that would be a healing component as well. Because then I have a sense of, what do I feel comfortable with? With this touch, that touch, how far in the sexual spectrum of activity am I comfortable going? Um, at what speed? And who am I going to do that with? Um, so whether you're in a relationship or not, you're really getting clear about your sexuality and your sexual boundaries is a very healing component. Um, and dialoguing with safe people. That has to be the biggest thing. Dialoguing with safe people that you can share and learn from. Uh, because there is hope and there are people who can help with this. So no one's well, alone in this. 100% as well as 
For many women that I work with, after discovery and after disclosure, um, they want to keep their sexual boundaries safe. And, And they say, you know, it's very hard for me to distinguish whether he wants me or whether he wants my body to become a sexual receptacle. And I'm always talking to them about what would make you feel safer. Maybe there can be some physical touch that does not become sexual. You know, what are your boundaries? And I also encourage women to start working on meeting their own sexual needs aside from their husband so that they can regain a sense of their own sexual satisfaction separate from him. Some women have done this really well and kind of shut that down because of the sexual trauma. And some women don't believe in it, and that's fine too. It's wherever a woman is at. But I also really do spend some time talking about um, being able to sexually satisfy yourself while you're in that transitional state of developing more safety with your partner. Yeah, yeah, it's, and that you're absolutely where it goes to each of us have our own belief systems about that and all are respected and it, it is an option for some. It's not an option for others, masturbation, and, and that's fine. Um, creating what do I feel comfortable with is back to that sexual boundary work and sexual identity. Who am I in the world as a sexual entity and where do I feel safe and comfortable in being. Um, and with, with your example of am I, is he into me <laughs> or am I a means to his addiction? Am I a means to the end? Does he just want to orgasm and get it over with? Or is he into me? And this is, I always say, well, did, was it safe to ask? I really am a firm believer in, <laughs> and my clients do giggle often about this, talk it out. If you're in the middle of a sexual act and that thought and concern comes up, ask. We're going to be doing a lot of talking and beginning in the reformation, recreation of safe sexuality. Ask. Ask, are you into me? I'm worried you're thinking about something else. You know, and of course, the preparation of these kinds of conversation has, has taken place already because I want him prepared that he can say, Yes, I'm totally into you. Or let me think about that for a second. I I thought I was here. And for him to say, no, I need to stop because I need to put my brain back in this moment. Or no, I thought about it and I'm good. I'm with you. I want there to be lots of dialogue. Now that I'm asking people to do something they really haven't done before. You want me talking a lot in sex? Are you crazy? (laughs) Yes, I'm crazy, apparently, because that's the way to rebuild safety, emotional safe and sexual safety at the same time. And so that's part of the rebuilding phase. Um, but if, if she's concerned, is he using me or is he into me? Is it safe to ask? And if, if, if it was safe enough, give it a go. Ask. And if not, it's a prompt for him to think about it. And if nothing else, you shared your voice. A lot of partners don't feel they have a voice in the sexual life. And they do. 
And so that's part of the healing, I really believe, of reclaiming your voice in the relationship, in the world, and especially in your sexuality. Um, so ask. You're not sure? You're worried? Um, well, the other thing that comes up is that often, or would not be unusual, for during a sexual act and a sexual experience that a partner has a flashback or intrusive thoughts or him with her or am I big enough, strong enough, fat enough, old enough, young enough, whatever's in during the sexual experience. And I want the partner to share that with him. I have to stop for a moment. I'm having intrusive thoughts. I'm having flashbacks. I don't feel comfortable all of a sudden. And so again, this is in a safety place where he then has been taught and coached how to say, all right, no problem. What can I do to help? Would you like me to hold you? Would you like me to go away? I mean, what, what can help? Because this is the healing. The healing will happen through the emotional intimacy. That's how we get to sexual intimacy. It's healing, not peace. And so as well, when I work with addicts, I work with both. I say to the addict, this is important that you do a self-inventory. Am I in a place emotionally, psychologically, physically, spiritually, that sex with my partner is a good thing for us right now? I want them very conscious about this. And I want them saying that to their partner. I've really thought about, and I think I'm in a good place. Would you be interested? I want them doing the inventory. And if something comes up during the sexual experience, I want them sharing that with their partner because, again, through the dialogue is how we create the intimacy for the sexual safety healing. So there's a lot of talking that I recommend during sex, which often puts a giggle on people. (laughs) Well, absolutely. And, you know, we say that the greatest sex organ is the brain, and that's obviously where communication is also formed. It requires vulnerability. And what Jeannie and I both know is that you have to be able to talk with somebody who understands this kind of betrayal so you can share your vulnerabilities. Because what happens in our office can then be transferred into the kitchen, into your home, into the bedroom. And That's why we really recommend AppSats, which is an organization that trains coaches and therapists to be partner-sensitive. Both Jeannie and I have been trained and are on the board. We really believe in this organization. And so we want you to go to appsats.org, that's A-P-S-A-T-S dot org, and look for a clinician or a coach in your area. And if you don't have one, there are coaches that can help to coach you through some of this stuff that do online work or phone coaching. They don't necessarily have to be in your city. Now, Jeannie, I was telling everybody that you are in Santa Rosa, California. And what would be a good way that our listeners could get a hold of you if they wanted to ask more questions about sexual trauma? Absolutely. Yes, we're in Santa Rosa, Northern California. And um, I'll give you our website. And of course, I have a connection to my email on our website. So the website is willowtreesantarosa.com. 
We're Willow Tree Counseling, and I co-own and co-founded that with my partner, Tim Stein. So willowtreesantarosa.com. And you can always go in that site and find my email and email me directly. Happy to talk with people, happy to consult with other clinicians, and, and happy to direct people in the right way. Well, yes, and as you mentioned just briefly, you're not only APSAC um, trained, but you're also a certified sexual addiction therapist. So you work with the addict, you work with the partner. And just about three weeks ago, while I was on vacation, I uh, replayed a show you had done on early couples recovery. So I also know you work with couples. I, I mean, you're an amazing clinician because you seem to be comfortable doing it all. <laughs> Well, you know, the early recovery couples work and because sex addiction is such and betrayal, trauma of betrayal is so different and unique. Um, it's, a, it's a specialty and it's, it's got nuances and the sexual impact is part of that. It's actually part of that. And that's a piece that we bring in the early recovery work because the sexual experiences has been harmed, the sexual attachment has been harmed in the relationship. And that's a bit unusual for sort of traditional couples therapy. So um, I have gone where my clients have directed, to be honest. And I learn so much from my clients and the way they share me and honor me with their trust. And mm-hmm. they have, I'm just noticing what they bring and putting it together and trying to facilitate so that other people who may be in therapy or not um, or may have access to um, specialized training to, to learn more, to learn more. There's a lot here, and there's a lot of people who are hurting, and so what can we do to bring more information to more people? So mm-hmm. I know my clients show me. <laughs> <laughs> Where they need me. Well, I yep. cannot thank you enough. I don't know that our listenership knows that, you know, not only are you a clinician and and you work in both these areas, but you also are a supervisor. You've made it your mission to teach others. And so um, from APSATS as well as from ITAP, we really appreciate your knowledge and um, we'll have you back on to talk more about sexual trauma. I feel like it's something that people just don't know enough about. So Jeannie, thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Carol, and thank you for putting this topic out to everyone. And I'd be happy to talk more about it a different day. Yeah. All, All right. Thank you. you. Take care. Uh-huh. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So, again, that was Jeannie Fettatoni, and she um, is part of an organization that she founded called Willow Tree in Santa Rosa, California. And I am with you every Thursday. I hope that you're downloading the show by going to Apple or Stitcher and subscribing for free, and then you will get all the downloads. So come to your computer. You can throw it on your MP3 player, and you can listen to the show when you're dropping off the kids, you know, after you've dropped off the kids, or you're mowing the lawn, or you're doing the dishes, or you're exercising. I mean, we want to make it easy for you. That's the beauty of podcasts. So, again, I'm so happy that I could be with you today. And as I say at the end of every show, fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. Because there will only be one of you at all times. 
Make it a good week, and we'll catch you next Thursday for more Betrayal Trauma Radio. For more information, go to APSATS.org, the Association of Partners of Sex Addicts Trauma Specialists, to find a professional in your area who is trained to help you after sexual betrayal.